Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I am back with another episode in our bonus series, talking with writers, podcasters, scholars, artists, filmmakers, and musicians about their favorite stories. Joining me today to talk about the 1979 novella, The Gate of the Flying Knives by Poole Anderson, is Matt Davids. Uh, Matt is a writer, podcaster, dungeon master, and game designer. Matt, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Glenn. It is a pleasure to be here. So Matt, let's talk about your podcast first, since I think the, the one thing that we know about the audience of this show is that they listen to podcasts. So what do you do on Dice Geeks? I really started that because I really wanted to have a discussion around um, how we can become better game masters and role players. And I feel that we can do that by just kind of filling ourselves with stories and just we can take every little thing and all kinds of bits from stories that we read or that we experience um, through television or, or audio or whatever it is, and then we can use those to inform our gaming. So on the Dice Geeks podcast, I interview game designers, writers, novelists, uh, even filmmakers, and we just talk about storytelling. We talk about history. Um, we just kind of talk about everything uh, around stories or situations that um, I feel then we can use in um, our gaming to, up, you know, to really just up our game as game masters and even role players. And of course, I have interviewed you a couple of times and um, those episodes were fantastic because I just think there's something about fiction um, and storytelling or just even, well, even nonfiction really that we can just learn those storytelling techniques by experiencing stories. And then they translate, I think, right over to tabletop role-playing games. Yeah. I really appreciate all the effort that you put in on the show to really encourage people to develop and and cultivate the storytelling aspect of of role playing the the you know the the role with the e on the end rather than that that extra l there and that's that's something that really is at the core of my experience with with gaming and something i just really love about your show and yeah as you said hey i've been over on dice geeks a, a few times and this is probably a good place to let listeners to elder sign know that this episode is actually part two of a uh, crossover event that uh, first episode uh is uh when i'm on uh, dice geeks as a guest we talked about another paul anderson story and that is already available so i'd would like to encourage listeners to make sure that they check that out. Uh, there's a, a link in the show notes, of course. But uh, Matt, let's keep talking about the the work that you do. You've done some work as well to help game masters across gaming systems and across genres as well. I think you're kind of the king of random tables. Can you tell us more about that? Um, yes. Um, I, I don't know if I'm the king of random tables, but I'm I'm trying to certainly, uh, I guess, go in that direction. Maybe I'm the uh, crown prince or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but um, um, and for people who who don't game, I guess I should explain what random tables are. So when you play a tabletop role playing game like Dungeons and Dragons um, or Pathfinder or even uh, Traveler or um, Star Wars or Star Trek in the various incarnations, um, random tables of items or encounters can be very helpful. So um, what I have started doing was I have started creating just lists of items that you can use that the game master or the dungeon master can use when they are running sessions. So 
if you are running a dungeon, for example, in Dungeons & Dragons, every time you enter a room, your players will want to have their characters usually search the room for clues for clues or items or anything that will help them on their quests. And personally, I got tired of telling my players that they find nothing in the room. So I have created tables that help people, um, that help game masters just um, come up quickly with items that can be in the room. So items in a wizard's chamber, items on a dead goblin's body, um, items all found along the roadside, just all kinds of things that you can that you can use uh, so you don't have to think of all the little minute details, you know, the night before and spend three hours on it because you never know what your players are going to ask for. So I have really dedicated myself to creating those. Um, they help me immensely as a game master, and I know they help other game masters as well. And as you said, Glenn, um, I have I have tables for fantasy, but I also have tables for science fiction for uh, the 1920s and 1930s. So if you're doing any Call of Cthulhu, I have tables for that. I have tables for the ancient world, uh, tables for cyberpunk, tables for the Wild West, just whatever genre you happen to be playing um, at your gaming table. I have been trying to cover that because um, those tables are just so helpful for game masters and they just eliminate a lot of the tedious prep that sometimes people complain about. And I have actually also found these tables to be extremely useful, not just for role-playing, but for writing. Uh, so for all the writers in our audience as well, uh, getting a hold of Matt's random tables and really just using them randomly uh, to come up with three elements that you now have to put in a story, find a way to get those elements together in a story uh, is something I highly recommend to get the the creative juices flowing. So please do definitely check those out. You also, in addition to all of the random tables, and I, I maybe perhaps will not call you a king again. I don't know where where I get the authority to be dubbing anybody <laughs> anything, but uh, you've also designed an original campaign setting for D&D 5th edition called Realms of Understreet. Uh, I think this is very cool, but can you tell listeners the premise of this setting? Yeah, well, the, the premise of Realms of Understreet is just simply fantasy kingdoms of rats that live under modern-day Manhattan Island. Um, and the campaign setting is just pretty much just a quick reskin of Dungeons and Dragons 5e. So um, humans become rats, uh, halflings become mice, dragonborn become salamanders and kind of so on. And, um, you know, I've... I've always loved the stories. I'm, I'm sure probably Glenn and your listeners are well aware of some of the stories that probably have influenced me, right? Of course, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim um, being one of the most famous, but also the borrowers are the littles, um, just different ideas, different stories of that, just, you know, of um, small either people or small animals that are uh, intelligent, that live um, in a separate world kind of all around us, but we don't see it kind of thing, um, just has always fascinated me ever since I was a child. So um, that was a, an idea I really wanted to uh, put together. And um, it's... Uh, 
it, it was a lot of fun putting it together. And basically, I just uh, took Manhattan Island and created different kingdoms and that underneath. And I've gotten a, a really a lot of good feedback um, on Realms of Understreet. And I know the people who have played it really um, just every once in a while, I, I'll get an email of people who just really love the setting. So I, I am I am very happy about that. Yeah, it seems like actually a, a really excellent way to get into gaming. I, I In fact, I was thinking about this the other day because I was uh, browsing my shelves, it was time for my toddler and I to start a new book at at nap time, and I was actually thinking about Nim and decided that maybe maybe that might be a little too scary for him. But that actually got me thinking about Realms of Understreet again, and also thinking about that actually in terms of at some point in the future when I'm going to want to introduce Finch to gaming. That Nim, uh, uh, you know, reading at at nap time or bedtime, I guess it'll really probably be at that age level, and then maybe just easing right into Realms of Understreet when he's excited about sentient rats would be the the way to get him into gaming. Absolutely. I, I think it is a great gateway for kids. Um, of course, I, I put in there different ways you can play it. You can play it uh, very kind of cartoon-like or you can go more realistic as you, know, as you want. Um, and uh, there is always something I, I think about the sentient animals that's always fascinating to children. So I think it would be a, a great gateway for them. Yeah, in fact, I started thinking about Nim because we just finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, he just totally gravitated towards the minor, maybe not minor, but sort of mid-level characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And now anytime he sees me with a book, he wants to know if Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are in that. But uh, Nim's just, <laughs> it's too scary for his age. So and I, I'm still the one who has to get up with him in the middle of the night. So we'll save that oh, for no. an older age. But uh, let's talk about uh, your, your novel as well. You have uh, written a, a really excellent novel called The Spaceport Gambit. What's the the tease here for listeners? Really, the tease is that um, uh, my main character, uh, she is kind of stymied in her corporate career. This is in a far future um, that I have created, and she is stymied in her corporate career and uh, because of all the kind of the closed minded uh, uh, board kind of stuffed shirts in the boardroom. And so she uh, breaks off and buys an abandoned spaceport by putting together a group of investors and a team of people to run this. And um, it kind of comes to a head with her old rival at her past corporation and uh, space pirates and uh, kind of spies or intrigue in a sector of space where the law has a very hard time reaching. And it is basically about her and her team uh, pulling things together to uh, make this old spaceport a valuable asset on a planet in this uh, kind of rundown sector and proving to everybody that um, it should have been a worthwhile endeavor in the first place. And um, yeah, it was... It was a it was a lot of fun writing it, and um, it's it's kind of a culmination of a dream, as as uh, many of your audience might understand. Um, that you know, when I was about six, I said I wanted to write a novel, so it was very gratifying to finally uh, uh, finish one and get it out there. And it is available on Amazon, and I have also have about ninety percent of a first draft of the second book um, done as well. So hopefully, the second book will be out um, sometime in maybe 2023 or something like that. 
Oh, that's great to hear. I was going to ask you what you were working on right now, but I also didn't want to put any pressure on you. So I'm, I'm glad to hear <laughs> that you're 90% of the way through it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, excellent. I, I hope listeners will check out at, at least some of that, if not all of your work. And of course, I, I will have links in the show notes for for all of these things. But let's turn our attention now to the, the story at hand, which is The Gate of the Flying Knives by Poole Anderson. I'm going to offer up just a, a very short synopsis for people who perhaps haven't read the story before or read it in a long time, and uh, then we can have a, a discussion about it. And really, the first thing to say about this story is that it is a fantasy story. It takes place in a secondary world that is not our own. This world is vaguely high medieval in terms of technology and and art, but it's also vaguely ancient in terms of institutions, feels like the ancient Mediterranean in a lot of ways. And this is generally a hallmark of sword and sorcery stories, which is exactly what this story is. Our protagonist is a man named Capinvara. Capinvara is a bard. He's a, a troubadour, really. He's a, a wandering musician who has come upon a good thing in the city of Sanctuary, which is far, far from his home in the West. The city of Sanctuary is part of the Rankin Empire, and the Rankin Empire is really an empire, which is to say that it is a state that has conquered and subjugated other people and brought them into this, this polity, this state in some way. And the good thing that Capinvara has found here in Sanctuary is a gig as a musician in the household of that city's governor. And the city's governor is an agent of the central imperial government. He is not a native of this city. Now, this governor is primarily concerned with an important building project, and this is a temple to the Rankin gods that uh, is going to be larger than any of the temples to the native sanctuary gods. Captain Vera is something of a, a scoundrel. Uh, he's motivated by money and lust, but while he has been in the governor's household, he's actually, and surprisingly, because against his nature, I guess, has fallen in love with a slave woman. Uh, she is the maidservant of the governor's wife. And the governor's wife is really the person who hires musicians and arranges for music and that sort of thing. She runs the the, the household. And at any rate, right, this this love is mutual. Uh, Capinvara and Danlis are going to be married soon. But there is uh, just one problem. Danlis and the governor's wife have disappeared. Capinvara wants to find Danlis, and so he consults with different magic users in order to locate her, and it turns out that she is no longer in this dimension. Danlis and the governor's wife, it turns out, have been kidnapped by a dragon, although it is not called a dragon here in the story, but we can shorthand it and say dragon. And this dragon is the servant of one of Sanctuary's gods, and then this dragon has taken them to another dimension that uh, one gets to through the temple for this god. So that's all the first two acts, which means it's time for the third act and the conclusion. And this is, as you will have guessed, it is the rescue operation. Capinvara now enlists the help of a warrior friend of his, who is a barbarian from the far north, who's modeled on a Viking, more or less. And together, they sneak into the temple. They find this gate into the other dimension. They rescue Danlis, also the governor's wife. And just in general, they save the day. And the story ends with Capinvara about to be rewarded with a position in the governor's administration, but 
as I said, Kevin Vara is a scoundrel, and the thing he fears most in all the world is responsibility. And so, in the end, he dreads responsibility more than he loves Danless, and now he's on the road again. And that is the end of the story. So just a a little behind the scenes for listeners here, when Matt and I were corresponding about doing a crossover event with me going on his show and him coming on my show, Matt said that he really wanted to read some Paul Anderson. And from there, we went with the two stories that Anderson wrote about this character, about Captain Vara, because, well, it let us do one story on each show with a, a connection between them. But really, the point that I'm driving at here is that it was Anderson that was your interest here, Matt, not Captain Vara. And so really, just my first question for you to get a conversation going is, what drew you to Paul Anderson? What got you interested in him? Paul Anderson is a master storyteller. Um, that would be the short answer. Um, and I have read some of his short science fiction short stories. Um, uh, but uh, I guess it was a few years ago, I had listened to one of his novels called The Broken Sword. And it just blew me away, the quality of language, the quality of storytelling. And um, I, I was just struck by... Um, Really, I th- um, really I think just the use of language and the construction of his stories, um, because well, I think it was um, another famous science fiction writer said that Poole Anderson is a poet who just happens to write science fiction, and of course he is mainly known for his science fiction, but um, his fantasy is um, outstanding as well, and so that had uh, you know listening to that novel, The Broken Sword had just wanted, you know, had just created a desire in me to, to look into him more and to uh, read more of his fiction. And in fact, since reading um, The Valor of Captain Vera and The Gate of the Flying Knives, I have picked up another volume of his work uh, with uh, the short story, which is called Call Me Joe, which some people say is uh, uh, Avatar from James Cameron, because it shares a lot of similarities there, but that was, of course, written, I believe, in the 50s. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to experience more of his prose because um, he is the definition of a wordsmith. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And and when I w- was on Dice Geeks, we talked quite a bit about just the, the beautiful wordsmithing of the, the first story in this arc. And this is really only the, I guess it's technically the fourth Paul Anderson work that I have read, but everything by Paul Anderson that I have read, I have read within the last nine months, maybe 10 months or so, and I'm just in love with it and I'm, I'm eager to do more. So when you suggested him, I was I was psyched because I had I had just read his, his novel Tau Zero and I also had read the novella that was at the core of that story that he, he fleshed out to turn into the, the novel as well. And both of them just had some of really the well, I guess most poetical language that I'd ever encountered in science fiction, his ability to explain in really complex physics concepts in poetical language is just, I mean, it's, it, I'm, I'm so envious of it. And frankly, I wish that's what all my science classes had been like. Oh, absolutely. Um, he just captures... Um... I, it's hard to explain uh, without even like reading some of his words because you're absolutely right. He just captures some of these images of different planets or faraway places, and he um, just weaves them together with 
some science and he just makes a clear picture and he he almost turns in his science fiction anyway he almost just turns say jupiter or something like that into a fantasy kingdom right he just uses that kind of same poetic language in his science fiction which um is, is very uh is very compelling uh, from a, you know, if you just love language and hearing, you know, well-written sentences. Um, actually, in fact, I almost forgot to mention, I did read another one of his stories. In the meantime, I read, um, it was called The Saturn Game, I think. Um, and uh, that was an interesting science fiction story because it it talks about people getting lost in a game as they travel this, you know, eight years to Saturn. Um and uh, I found that interesting just obviously because I play tabletop role-playing games, but that would, could be a subject for its own podcast uh, in diving in. So I won't stray too far there, but uh, needless to say, um, if your listeners haven't experienced some Paul Anderson, they should definitely pick up a few short stories at least. This has me thinking, Matt, about your your own history with being interested in in fantasy fiction, I suppose, in particular, because I think that for most of us, you know, who are into gaming and also into fantasy literature, you know, they become kind of inextricable. They become maybe intertwined, maybe is the better descriptor there for us. But there is maybe a bit of a chicken and, a, and an egg question there. Did you get into fantasy stories through gaming or was it the other way around? You know, that's an interesting question. Um you know, I first played Dungeons and Dragons when I was nine years old, so it's hard for me to remember back. Um Honestly, it would have probably been, I mean, since I was so young back then, it would have probably been movies or TV shows or cartoons or something like that, that really, um, uh, uh, really kind of pulled me into these, you know, into this, you know, kind of, uh, fantasy worlds or science fiction, right? I mean, um, the fantasy side, even before I experienced Dungeons and Dragons, I remember seeing, um, this is a pretty big callback, but the old Rankin and Bass Return of the King animated um, movie and um, possibly even the Lord of the Rings uh, one from, um, oh, he's the famous yeah, animator. Yes, yes. I almost forgot his name right there, but yes, that is correct. And then also Rankin and Bass also did a Hobbit animated one. And I remember seeing those when I was very young and just being really just fascinated by those because I had no concept of what, you know, The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings was as a, you know, as literary works at the time. Um, but I think those really kind of kindled some of my interest and then um, – when I came to Dungeons and Dragons, it, it just made perfect sense, right? It just made perfect sense that I was basically in a fantasy world like that. And I, I think that really um, seeing some of those really helped. And I, I think um, I've mentioned it a few times on my podcast, but I think one of the things that is currently fueling this uh, resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons kind of into a second golden age is the fact that now the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies kind of have, you know, since they have been global successes and swept the world, um, that provides like a framework for a Dungeons and Dragons world. And I think that may have been hard for some people to understand what that was like if they hadn't read Lord of the Rings or something like that. So I think that's helped the popularity of Dungeons and Dragons, but I had already had that bit of a framework because I had seen those animated movies uh, when I was so young, but really then 
you know, like I said, coming into Dungeons and Dragons at at nine, that really fueled, you know, uh, all of my interest in, you know, fantasy fiction and I think science fiction as well to a degree. But of course, uh, Star Wars and Star Trek were always always in the background, uh, fueling an interest in um, what we might be doing in the far future or the uh, ancient past in another galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you've, you've more or less just told my biography as well. I mean, even, <laughs> even the ages are almost exactly the same, but you are the first person I have ever heard say anything nice about that rankin Bass, uh, Hobbit and Return of the King. But those were my go-to um, like sick movies. Any If I was homesick from school, you know, basically, I don't know, second through ninth grade, that's what I would put on, you know, on the couch. I'd watch the entirety of The Hobbit and ideally fall asleep about 10 minutes into The Return of the King and feel better, you know, <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. I mean, and I wore out that VHS tape. So, uh, um, I, I know we're, we're both very busy people, but I hope that I can get you back on the, the network at some point and you and I can do an episode on that. We might be the only people who want to listen to it because I think everyone else <laughs> hates that movie so much, but I love it. It, it means so much to me. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think the the Hobbit one, I can get some of the criticism, but um, it, it was still fascinating when I was a child. And the Return of the King movie is quite interesting because there is a scene in it which is pivotal in the novel but peter jackson doesn't include it in the in the movie or he has a kind of a modified version of it that i think that animated return of the king does spectacular and that is um gandalf and the witch king at the gate um encounter and i would challenge anybody to watch that scene and not uh, get chills <laughs> It's so good. And in fact, uh, I'm a voracious reader of Lord of the Rings. I, I read it every every year and, and The Hobbit as well. And my entire life, I have been unable to read that scene in Return of the King without hearing the, the voice of the animated Witch King from that film. I don't, I don't know, have, I have no idea who the voice actor was, but whoever that was did an amazing job. I mean, it's just there in, in my, the very fiber of my, my being. It's, it's excellent. Well, I, I brought us pretty far afield from this story, but I, yeah. I for, for yeah. a reason, and, and really my question was re really driving at whether or not, I think specifically sword and sorcery was something that you were familiar with already when you went into gaming, or if it was something that you got into or discovered, maybe encountered for the first time through D and D, and then went looking for sword and sorcery literature after that, and and it's kind of it's not a loaded question, but the question is really premised on that. For me, my my entry into fantasy was Tolkien, and in fact, really the same exact trajectory as yours. So, for me, sword and sorcery is actually not something that I read very much of until I became an adult. I read epic high fantasy, you know, knockoffs of Tolkien, like every Terry Brooks novel, you know, ever, and like a whole series of things like that. That was what I was reading while I also. Also, at the same time, was playing so much Dungeons and Dragons, but I had no other experience of sword and sorcery. But have you read a lot of sword and sorcery? Yeah, you know, um, I would probably say no, um, just to be fair. Um, it, and I have kind of an interesting background just because I, I struggled with reading as a child and uh, quite a bit. And um, so I tried to do a lot of catch up as an adult. So I didn't even read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit until I was about 19 or 20. And of, of course, it just blew me away. Right. And uh, so that was my entry into fantasy literature pretty much as well. Um, but since then, you know, I have I have gone back and I've read, I think, most of the Conan stories. And um, 
some of the more famous that would be, you know, categorized as sword and sorcery. So I would, I would have to say no. That uh, in fairness to the volume of material out there that I haven't read a lot, um, I I I have enjoyed some that I have read, but it is um, I don't know. It's um, there's a certain feeling you have to get. I think where uh, sword and sorcery really um, kind of clicks for me. And of course, you know, some of the Conans do that. Um, um, the broken sword uh, by Paul Anderson. I don't know if that could be classed as sword and sorcery exactly, but that one really uh, was a powerful book. It, it it's kind of deals with, um, you know, the elf land kind of fae and fairy. So I don't know if that is, class to sword and sorcery but um um you know i have re read a fair bit but I, I wouldn't say you know i have read a ton but certainly my interest in dungeon dragons you know fueled a, a lot of the interest in looking for stories like that yeah i think that's that's it really exactly my amount of experience with sword and sorcery as well and you know it's easy to say that you don't have like a, a great deal of experience with sword and sorcery simply because you know how much you haven't read like how much is out there to experience because it's a ton i mean you can read you can have read 2000 pages worth of sword and sorcery stories and that's a small percentage of what's out there and so that, that can be pretty pretty overwhelming but i, I just really wonder matt how this setting here works for you, uh, you know, compared to other sword and sorcery settings that you've encountered, maybe from, you know, Conan, but also in gaming as well. Oh, this, the setting in the story here, um, I thought was perfect <laughs> um, because uh, it, it touched on a lot of ideas in gaming that that provide story hooks, right? If you're a game master or a dungeon master, you're always looking for ways to involve your players in the world and putting them in a metropolis city where it has been conquered. There are new gods, there are new rulers, but there is an ancient past. Um, and it is also a huge city, right? With trade and commerce, very active. Um, that setting and it kind of has kind of a Middle Eastern kind of a Turkish, maybe Istanbul ish kind of feel or something to um, the city of sanctuary. And it just provides so much, you know, so much material for a, a player character or a game master or a dungeon master, just to, if you just present that to your players, you would have so much to do. So this setting really, um, really to me, I, I really found it compelling. And I, I love the idea at the beginning of the story with uh, Cap and Vera walking through this big marketplace or bazaar. And um, really, uh, Anderson's description of that uh, really kind of blew me away because he just starts off these kind of long sentences with just word, word, word after word, after word, after word, kind of just a comma, you know, just a word, comma, word, comma, just telling you what is in this bizarre. And it and it actually has the effect of feeling like you're in a crowded place as you're reading the sentences. And I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I really love that that bazaar scene or market scene as well. That place felt awesome, and they they call it the the maze too, which is is excellent. So we get a little, you know, a name for the district. We get a sense of of who's there. Even the the 
fortune teller character that he goes to talk to. We get a little bit of information about her. She's difficult to get along with and has had to sort of move her stall to another place because she upset whoever's in charge of, uh, you know, assigning where people get to have their stalls or their their booths in the market. So it felt like a very lived in world. And I really, really enjoyed it. And the thing that had me most excited about this is that this place, Sanctuary, is actually something that's a, a much bigger world than just this one Paul Anderson story that we get. Uh, it, it comes from an anthology series called uh, Thieves' World. It's a, it's a multi-author anthology series that was created and edited by Robert Asprin. It was, uh, the first volume of this was published in 1979, but there were 12 of these anthologies published between 1979 and 1989, which is more than one a year on average, which just blows my mind. That's That's a lot just to think that there was a market for that is it just in itself just uh just i don't know has me has me full of nostalgia for the 1980s which is not generally something that happens to me but definitely i i have nostalgia at least for a writing market i never got to write for but this was a really cool series a, a lot of writers contributed stories to this world uh, including some writers that uh, I, I've covered here on the network, like David Drake and A.E. Van Voigt and uh, Joe Haldeman as well. And so, yeah, this story is already you know part of something, right, that role-playing games are at their core, which is collaborative storytelling and world-building, which just immediately then has me thinking, uh, Matt, about how you would use this setting for an adventure. Like, are there any details here that suggest a cool story for, uh, you know, maybe a solo adventure, maybe maybe something for a band of murder hobos somewhere in between? <laughs> oh, there's so much. Um, there is so much that um, is kind of like what I was saying is that um, just the little details we get are are just you know are are just the the seeds for for tons of campaigns really, um, and the kind of my style uh, of game mastering what I would do is I would kind of just present the scene to my players uh, almost as we are presented to to it in the story and um, say okay it is a metropolis. It has been conquered. There are, you know, new rulers. There are foreign gods struggling to replace the old gods. The things in the marketplace. Here's what's going on in the marketplace. You have an inn, right? We get an inn called the Vulgar Unicorn. We get an inn. Um, here's this inn. Here's a fortune teller in the maze that you can go see. Um, and just some different things like that. And I would just present it to my players. And usually, you know, if you have very active players, they are just going to kind of run off and do their own thing with a lot of those. And then I would, like I was saying, like my style would then be to react to them and maybe feed them little bits. But I mean, there's got to be something with the power structure in the city being replaced. Um, you know, original uh, rulers of the city probably do not like these conquerors. And so you're going to have conflict. I mean, there's this conflict built in at all of those places. So with all of that conflict, um, yeah, I would just kind of set this as a scene and I may do it in the future, right? I may just tell people they're in a city like this. I'll call it something other than sanctuary and see where they go with it and let them react to some of those layers because we get so many layers. It is just rife with conflict and rife with story. 
Yeah, I even had wondered if if someone actually had turned this into a, you know, a role-playing setting, like maybe in the GURPS system or, or something like that. I, I didn't look too hard, but my cursory looking didn't didn't turn up anything, even though this is in kind of the heyday of early D&D. I think somebody did. Um, I don't have much information on that, but I thought I saw the Thieves' World campaign setting someplace. Oh, brilliant. Well, I didn't look hard enough. So I, I when, when we're offline, I will, uh, I'll ask you for that because I, I definitely would want to check that out. It's also the sort of thing I would just like to have lying around for my, my son to discover when he's old enough to get into role-playing games. Because this is a cool setting and I, I'm, I'm going to actually read more of these stories. Uh, I don't know if I'll do anything with them on the air, but I was really enamored of this setting immediately. And I think like you really drawn to this, this power structure, this, this power dynamic. I, I, interestingly, we're told here in the story that you know, Sanctuary has been part of the Rankin Empire for, for quite a long time and that any ideas about resistance have really died down, that people just accept that they are you know, citizens of the, the Rankin Empire, even if you know, culturally they identify as you know, being a part of, of Sanctuary. There's a different language and it's certainly a different religion and, and so on. But that it's, it's not until there's this move to build a temple to the Rankin gods that is going to be bigger than any of the temples for the Sanctuary gods that we get this resistance, right? And to me, this just seems like a great moment uh, to jump into this setting and uh, in particular to explore religion. I, I could see myself wanting to make a character who is perhaps one of the priests, maybe not of the temple that we get in this story, but of one of the other gods in the city or something like that, and to really explore the religious world of sanctuary and their internal politics, of which we get actually quite a bit here in the story. Uh, there's some disagreements between the uh, uh, person who's in charge of this temple and then the second in command. It turns out the second in command is the one who really has sent the dragon and so on. And all of that just has me really, really excited. But there's also tons of room here for barbarians, for bards. It's it's just fantastic. One thing that really struck me about the story is that um, just reading through it, it basically uses all the terminology that Dungeons and Dragons uses. Um, there are warlocks. It mentions warlocks. It mentions thaumaturges. It mentions prestidigitation. It mentions bards. It mentions barbarians. Um, in just using, you know, specific words that'll like become game terms. So uh, to me, you know, I was just reading it and I was just like, um, the does you know the writers of Dungeons and Dragons just like lifted some of these terms from the the story, or it almost seems that way. I'm sure they're included in other stories that I haven't read, but it just like it it can't it doesn't seem like it can be a coincidence that we would get so many words that have become game terms. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways this this feels almost like it is a a, a story that is really designed to to hook people on D&D. Like this is the type of story that you might get in a an actual like campaign setting manual today, like a core book where like read this story first just to get a flavor of what we're trying to do here with this setting and the types of adventures we want you to to be able to do here. That's totally what it feels like and it's it's breathtaking there. You you brought up the the different classes that we get and we talked about this last time when we did the Valor of Captain Vara over on Dice Geeks. We talked about, you know, what D&D &D character class we thought Captain Vara was. We 
settled on Bard. Uh, and in fact, really, we didn't settle on that. It just seemed obvious. But I, I wonder <laughs> yeah. if you feel that way about his depiction in this story. Does he still seem like a Bard to you? Or would you uh, change your mind to think he's multi-classed uh, since we last saw him? <laughs> yeah, you know, that is interesting because I was thinking about that. Um, I still think he's a Bard, um, if quite obviously, because they when they his dress or his costume, I guess, is depicted. It is pretty much quintessentially uh, what you would think of as like a court bard. Um, but yes, there does seem to be um, uh, a little bit extra like he, um, you know, that he is a bard, but he is also a very good fencer. So I know last time I said maybe he would be College of Eloquence. You know, maybe this time he, uh, you know, he he seems to have picked up a a bit more of a, you know, fencing kind of bent um, uh, in his uh, in his actions. So that would maybe place him in the College of Valor or something like that um, uh, in in kind of fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Um but I, I did find it, it, it quite interesting, but it, just how well he fits into that category. And actually, I was just you know thinking too the scene um, in the inn when he is getting his information to really find out how these two ladies were kidnapped. Um, we have an innkeeper, we have a bard, then we're introduced to a thief, um, then a wizard shows up, and then. Um, he goes and brings his friend who is a barbarian. I mean, you basically have a whole D&D party. Um, now there's some difference with who goes with him and things like that. But it, I, I just found it fascinating that it's like, you know, in 1979, this is basically a D&D party in a story. Um, uh, I, I don't know. It's just like you have like that you only leave out a couple classes at that point, I think, <laughs> or you might have all classes mentioned because they do mention warlocks and stuff like that later. Uh, I, I just find it fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the, the story, you know, the real action of the story anyway, begins in a, a, just a D and D style in, and I love this innkeeper character because he's clearly something of a, of a, a facilitator here. And so this is just a great idea for uh, maybe not so much a campaign, but just a series of, of, you know, one shot adventures that you may, want to do with a gaming party where it's just the innkeeper has a job and he has taken a look at the details of the job and has figured out you know or decided anyway which you know which character classes he thinks would be good for this particular job and so he's he's called them in you know and uh, uh, has them you know have have some drinks and presents the mission to them and then sends them on their way and you could just do that you know over and over and over again and just as a, really a short story cycle rather than a, a big campaign. And I would love to play something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And we also find out the innkeeper is not above murdering somebody who's giving him trouble. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it's definitely a sword and sorcery place. It's not, it's, this is not the prancing pony. You know, no, sure. no, no, absolutely not. Yeah, not, not the prancing pony, not the green dragon. Um, this is a sword and sorcery uh, in uh, you know, through and through. Yes, it's it's a rough a rough crowd, but you don't cause trouble. You don't cause trouble at the vulgar unicorn. That is that is for certain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I had been been having some doubts about whether or not Captain Vara was really still a, a bard here, and it was really because the resolution here, right? His ability to save the day, to rescue uh, Danlis and and her 
mistress, the governor's wife, didn't depend on his eloquence as much as as the solution did, the resolution did in the valor of Capinvara, and there wasn't any real magic use from him this time around. But I think that your explanation of of you know what exactly it is that he did. I think really does emphasize that he's still using his charisma, right? Which is, of course, you know, the 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 hallmark of the bard. So you've you've sold me on him still being a bard here. Yeah, because he he kind of uses what you might call a parlor trick, right? He he uh, he takes some of this knowledge. So he's a bard, maybe courtesan kind of figure. So maybe his. Um, in 5e, you know, his class is a bard and his college is eloquence, but his background maybe should be a courtesan. So he learned some of these tricks and and things while pleasing the nobles at dinner and at court and things like that. Where do you think that uh, he's going next after after this? Is he is he done trying to do this work? Is he going to go home and, and retire with the, the wealth that he's gained here? Or is he going to end up in another predicament, do you think? Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, no, I think he gets into many, many problems. Um, he, uh, yet again, at the end of the story, because in the first story we looked at, he wins the day, right? And he wins the hand of a lady and he is going to, in the first story, he's going to be made heir to a very large, seemingly kingdom. And in this one, he is going to be a statesman in a giant city and wedded to a beautiful maiden. Um, but, and you mentioned that a little bit, I, I think there's one line from the story that just sends Captain uh, Vera over the edge. And it's when Danless says, I will mold you. <laughs> and I think that line just sends him over the edge and he's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Cause um, there is no, there is no uh, keeping Cap'n Vera, you know, to there is no keeping him still in one place. There is no uh, accepting responsibility. There is no taking on uh, basically a day job or, or something like this. This Cap'n Vera is not made for that. And um, and also another section, too, is when um, he is completely head over heels in love with Danless. And she says, you know, will you meet me again? And he's like, well, of course, I will meet you again. And she says, well, then meet me here at sunrise. And kind of his internal monologue just like screams sunrise because he can't imagine like getting up that early <laughs> to, to do something because he um, is used to staying up at night and sleeping in during the day. Um, so, no, I think Captain Vera uh, goes on to many other adventures and uh, never settles down until uh, perhaps he is uh, maybe run through in a bar fight or something like that. Yeah, I think for for a night person, the idea of, of having to, you know, have a nine to five job <laughs> working in the government is is absolutely <laughs> terrifying. And I, yeah. I love the character of Dan Liss here. I, I don't think I, I said nearly enough about her in this synopsis, yeah. because it turns out that she is, you know, Captain Vara saves the day in the sense of he leads the the rescue mission to go into the other dimension and rescue them from the dragon and uh, the minions as well. I mean, there's really some gripping like adventure here to this story. But there is still on the outside this issue of the imperial government having upset the clerics here in the city of Sanctuary, and Danless solves that problem. She comes up with a solution there where mm -hmm. the governor can uh, carry out the emperor's orders while also appeasing the inhabitants of Sanctuary. And it's very clear that she is 
cle- the clever one and probably already has been in some way at least the decision maker here in the in this household in the governor's household and that now she's going to help she, you know cap and vera become a really great advisor to the governor and give him this amazing career in government. But he's going to be the one punching the time card, but she's really the one who's going to be doing the thinking about it. And (laughs) I I want to know more about her. I mean, and that's even another type of game, you know, that, that you could do would be a a court intrigue game where you play someone like Danless and maybe some other people and do uh, something that's a little more like game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She is a very interesting character because at first you would think um, she is just a a maid or something like that. But it goes out of the way to say she is an amanuensis, right? She is the the scribe to her mistress and that she has studied mathematics and it, it kind of goes out of your way to, you know, the, the story goes out of its way to position her in a place to where she is a, a very complex character and that she is more than able to uh, handle politics at court and to uh, let Captain Vera know what he needs to do so that the city doesn't erupt into, you know, just total bloodshed and chaos. Like, like you said, she figures out the political solution. Like, well, you, you build the temple, but you don't make it bigger than that, uh, you know, the old temple and, you know, and, and just some different of those political solutions where uh, Cap'n, uh, you know, Cap'n is already bored, <laughs> right? He's, he's already <laughs> he's already bored and he's already trying to move along um, uh, from that. And she is just saying, well, no, no, I, I can I can show you all of these things. This will be great. Right. We'll we'll basically like rule in the shadows or something of the of the great city and this will be awesome and he's like oh no i can't handle that <laughs> yeah and it's really telling to me as well that he doesn't even counter with i i actually just want to be a musician i love my art i love doing what i what i do you know i want to play i want to compose so you know in terms of getting a reward for having saved the day and rescued people from a dragon i i would just like to have some security and stability doing doing that that's what i would like to do he doesn't counter with that he just bolts and it makes me think that maybe he doesn't even love his art and his craft that much he, it's, what he loves is the lifestyle that working as a musician affords him yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah, it's not like, oh, well, now I'll have time to work in the studio all day and make, <laughs> you know, and make awesome albums or whatever, whatever bards do or whatever. But that's not what he wants to do either. Right. He wants to play something that, you know, comes kind of naturally to him that he enjoys. Play it, get a few coin and then sleep until, you know, 1 p.m. the next day. Right. And not worry about um, and not worry about really doing a job and 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 things like that. Um, yes, he is the uh, really the quintessential bard. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a very rock and roll bard. And I, I love him. I mean, he think he really is the type of character that I was always trying to play as a as a gamer, as an adolescent, for sure. I have wandered away from the bard in my uh, uh, my balding maturity. But uh, as an adolescent, all I ever wanted to do was play was play bards. Well, we're, we're coming up on an hour here, Matt. So maybe I'll close this episode out with just a, a sort of a meta question about the, the two stories that we read as our, 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 for our crossover event here, the Valor of Captain Vera and then this one, the, the Gate of the Flying Knives. If you had to pick only one of these uh, to read again, uh, which of them do you think it would be? It's a, maybe a way of saying, which of these two stories did you like better? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question because... I think I would read the the valor of Cap'n Vera again, um, 
to just to try to understand kind of the interplay with the troll in that story. Um, I, I thought that was really interesting, but um, it, it's really hard to pick uh, because in this one, I was just again, enjoying some of his language so much that um, um, I, I wouldn't mind reading this one again either. But um, uh, I think the first one with the encounter with the troll and kind of the, um, the magic trinket that we talked about on on my podcast uh, um, was just kind of an interesting interplay and in how he guesses things about the troll through deduction. I thought was was quite interesting, um, but um, but yes, uh, hard pressed. Um, maybe the maybe the valor of Captain Vera, but uh, I still did enjoy um, the Gate of Flying Knives um, uh, quite a bit, and it's just. Um, to me, it's just uh, even even in both of the stories, you know, a lot of times on my podcast, we'll talk about world building and how game masters or dungeon masters can build their own fantasy world. Um, just how much he accomplishes in just so few pages um, as to the tone and feel of the world. Um it's just a just really amazing because um, I would love to game in kind of a northern kingdom of these Viking giants like in the first story, but I would also love to game in kind of this Middle Eastern city, a bizarre, you know, marketplace, large, um, you know, metropolis where, you know, people from many different lands are mingling. I, I think those are both great settings. And um, so, yeah, maybe the first one, but uh, I, I really did enjoy these. And, and I guess like we've been talking about, it was basically like reading a, a Dungeon and Dragons session, but written by a poet. So I, 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 I didn't lose anything by reading both of these. I, I, I really enjoyed them both. Yeah, I would be hard pressed to want to make that decision, but I, I, I think I, I agree with everything that you're saying here. I think the writing is excellent in in both stories. Anderson has just this beautiful poetical, descriptive power in his prose, but I think that the valor of Cap'n Vera had a, a more interesting plot uh, that was rooted in the the protagonist's cleverness that I really really enjoyed. But I think that I liked the world building in Sanctuary here uh, 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 just a ton. And so, you know, they each have their strengths. I think the the Venn diagram is the beautiful writing. One's more focused on on plot, and the other, I think, is more focused on on world building. So it's a it's a hard choice for me to make as as well. But it's also just, I think, a great you know pairing these two stories is just a great exemplar of the breadth of Anderson's ability. Yeah, and I think another thing too, we didn't even mention. Um, in this story, the the wizard, or we, I only mentioned it briefly that he, that uh, Cap'n meets in the inn. Um, and one thing about uh, Anderson's writing that really strikes me is that wizard character, we meet this wizard character only briefly, but we learn that he... Um, is cursed to change forms <laughs> every once in a while, or I don't even know how often, or every some years. And we learn that he's long lived. We also learn that he has familiars, which is another game term in D&D. &D. Um, and um, I was just struck by that because something about Anderson's writing is that character of the wizard right there you could write probably like 20 novels about that character, right? Like it's so dynamic. And that was one of the things that struck me uh, a couple of years ago when I wrote, 
when I read The Broken Sword um, as well, is that there are sentences in The Broken Sword that other rock that other writers could make like into three novels. And I, I just love the way he packs, you know, each of these stories with um, this material that you're just like, Oh, I want, I want to know this guy's story. Oh, I want to know her story. I want to know that story. Well, that would be an amazing story. And he just seems to do it just as like an offhand, you know, almost as an offhand remark, just adding a little, you know, dynamicness to his, you know, a short story here. But um, he managed just to create these things that are fascinating uh, enough to carry, you know, a major work by themselves. Yeah, I love this wizard character. It, it it felt a lot like Quantum Leap to me, like this sort of sense of all right, you know, uh, I'm on the inside. I'm Scott Bakula, but but who am I this week? And uh, just what a great hook that is. I mean, that would be a cool thing to do to a player. Uh, well, maybe not, cool and cruel, I suppose, both at the same time as a you know <laughs> something to do. But but what what a what a fun way to tell stories that would be. Yes, because you could say you know you you could always give them some kind of boon as well as a curse right you say oh well your character is long lived your character is just um going to be you know very ancient but it's just you know every year you're going to change forms <laughs> or whatever it is or roll the dice and you might change forms and you're just like um that would be that would be an incredible hook uh to a player and yes it may be cruel but it would be very interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 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 player who uh, who wanted to be a you know a barbarian or something at the the start of the campaign and is now playing like a gnome inventor, uh, just because of the luck of the dice. You know, three sessions in would be. Uh, uh, I, I mean, that would be an interesting thing. You'd have to have, of course, the buy-in from your players. I think to to do that, but uh, that could make for some uh, some real fun. Well, I think before I start turning this into a a quantum leap podcast, I'll I'll close <laughs> us out here. But I'll say, uh, Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show and and guest hosting with me today. Uh, no problem. It was a pleasure. And um, I really enjoyed looking th into these stories. And I uh, really greatly enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much. Well, and I hope listeners will go check out Matt's podcast, Dice Geeks, uh, including the, the the first episode that we did together on Poole Anderson. You can find a, a link to that episode, also the, the show at large, also to Matt's RPG work and his novel, all of that you can find in the show notes. But Matt, where else can people find you on the internet to keep up with what you're doing? Well, really, the main place is DiceGeeks.com. You can always check out there. Or if you are into Dungeons & Dragons or tabletop role-playing games um, and you don't want to remember DiceGeeks.com, you can just, uh, in Google, just type in the Book of Random Tables. Uh, most of my books uh, come up with just that simple uh, title, and you'll be able to see fantasy, random tables, science fiction, uh, the whole range of genres uh, that you can check out there. So uh, that is pretty much where you can find me. Awesome. And Brandon and I will be back on July 26th with some magical realism in uh, what I think is a, another setting, actually, that could be great role-playing fun. That's going to be The Castle of Crossed Destinies by Italo Calvino. And so until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>